0: Welcome back to Stories from the Ashes, where we pontificate on good books and the stories that define and refine us. I'm Amber, and I'm here per usual with Amanda, and today we are talking about impactful books. And this was kind of um, a topic we had to run around with a little bit, trying to figure out if they were going to be impactful books or influential books, because Amanda self declared read mostly junky books as a little kid so i have all these highly formative books from my childhood and she was only coming up with titles from when she was an adult but that's completely completely allowed to have your formative books when you're an adult because until we die we are still clay as far as i'm concerned <laughs> and the science is backing me up because they're showing that you can still make new neural connections and all this stuff in your brain even when you're old if you do the right things so yep We are excited to hear Amanda's books from her adulthood and maybe (laughs) some from when she was younger. And then I was very much story formed as a child. And so I'm going to pull from that so we can have a good balance of kids books and adult books for you guys to pull from if you're looking for book recommendations. So do you want to start, Amanda, or do you want me to? Um, You can start. Okay, I'll start with the first book that ever influenced me, and that was The Magical Drawings of Mooney B. Finch by David M. McPhail, and I fell in love with this book and the illustrations, and it's a little boy, and he's sitting there drawing, and it wasn't until I mentioned this book in the Facebook group a couple years ago when I magically found it at a library sale because I couldn't remember the title of it. I mean it's not an easy title to remember when you've been away from it. Yes. (laughs) The magical drawings of Mooney B. Finch. And I found the book and I was sharing about it and I found out there were more books about this little boy that David McPhail had written. So I was able to go and find them. But in this one he's drawing and his drawings are coming to life. And the gentleman at the park that discovers his drawings are coming to life. Wants something from him, wants him to draw something for him. And then the lady with the crying baby wants him to draw something for the crying baby. And then the gentleman with the cane wants him to draw a car for him. And it's just everybody has these things that they want and they just keep wanting more and more and more from him. And finally he draws a dragon and the dragon roars and it scares them all away. And he Oh, I think before he draws the dragon, he starts erasing the pictures. And as he erases them, the item that he'd given these people goes away. And so they're angry. And that's why he makes the dragon. But basically, my takeaway from this was entitled people are going to be entitled. (laughs) And (laughs) you don't owe them anything. And so this was the most satisfying book to me when I was a little kid. And it is equally satisfying to me as an adult. So it definitely held up over time for me. And now as an adult, I realize just how much in general I love David and McPhail's books.
1: Are you a people pleaser? And did it like release you from people pleasing mentality?
0: Well, I think that so statistically, kids with ADHD are told that they're doing something wrong, like 60% more than other people in their childhood. And I was undiagnosed ADHD and undiagnosed autism. And so I couldn't please people. And so I think that no matter how hard I tried to please people, they were displeased with me and my actions were misinterpreted and things that I was doing that I thought would bless people just made them unhappy with me and I could not figure it out. And so I think this was like comforting to me to know that a kid who seemed to have it figured out and was doing things that these people actually liked. Still couldn't please them, <laughs> and so it just told me that some people are unpleasable, and it's not your fault. so I yeah. think that that was that was a very necessary, powerful lesson for me to know that maybe it wasn't me, maybe it was just people and their own expectations being at clash with me and what I had to offer. so even though he had everything to offer, it still they were clashing, so that was just a good lesson for me
1: (laughs) yeah that that sounds like a good lesson so so i have a book from when i was in college and the first time i read this is my big honkin jane or uh air or bronte Bronte.
0: i thought it was a bible when you picked it up that thing's a monster
1: no, I'm I'm assuming that we are just assuming that the Bible is really our most impactful book. And we're going beyond that.
0: That sounds like a decent assumption.
1: Okay. Um, so I read Jane Eyre for the first time when I was in college, just for, it wasn't a class thing. It was just for fun. And it was impactful because, of course, growing up, In the church, we had a church library that was full of Amish Christian romance (laughs) and similar things. And I read those. But so in my life, I had had non-Christian books and Christian books Mm -hmm. and things that were non-Christian had nothing at all to do with God and things that were Christian books always had to have the storyline wrapped up in some salvation or repentance or, and Jane Eyre was the first book that I read that I felt like was real. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. your faith didn't have to be wrapped up in the story or like you could be a person of faith while living life. Mm-hmm. And so it was just impactful because I was, I was like, wait, why aren't all books like this? Why do we yeah. have to have Christian books right. and then secular books? So I've appreciated, uh, we just talked to the Smiths about Jack Zulu. And that was one of the things I appreciated about their book is that some of the characters were Christians. It wasn't a Christian book with some sort of moral lesson we had to teach you all.
0: Right. Yeah. I feel like a lot of those those Christian books are just like pounding home some moralistic tale mm-hmm. instead of just saying, here is real life and here's how you can walk it as a devout Christian and
1: mm-hmm.
0: let your Christianity impact your decisions, but not be preaching at you the entire yeah. time, which just is a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. And Jane Eyre also had, you know, the character – Oh, what was his name? John's. The one who was going to be a missionary and was like, you have to marry me so that that you can be my missionary wife because don't you want to serve God? And so it it had, it was like the first time I read a a Christian character that wasn't like perfect. Yeah. So it was nice to have that variety.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say for me. A similar book, but at a much younger age, would have been Treasures of the Snow by Patricia St. John. And so that was a book that had broken characters, very broken characters, and very real emotions. It wasn't just, you know, once you become a Christian, everything's perfect, you're perfect, you're happy all the time. This is what Jesus does for you, which is a false prosperity gospel. <laughs> Jesus yes. did not promise happiness. Yes. He promises suffering. And so one of the things that I remember vividly as a kid is asking almost every adult in a leadership position that I came across, what does it look like to actually forgive someone? Because I felt that they're, we're all, there's the concepts of forgiveness in the yeah. Bible, and you're told to forgive. But I didn't feel like just saying, I forgive you, was cutting it for some big things in my life. And so I wanted to know, what does it look like? like what are the action steps to forgiveness. And I think that's why I like that book, Be Kind, so much, because it goes beyond just that picture book that I shared a few episodes ago, because it goes beyond just be kind to people. And it's like, what does being kind look like? What does that actually look like? It looks like using someone's name and all of this. So I feel that when I read Treasures of the Snow, it was the most powerful book on the modeling of forgiveness of my childhood. And it had multi-generations. It had people struggling with forgiveness at every stage of their life. Mm -hmm. And it showed what happens when you you don't forgive yourself, what happens when you don't forgive others, what happens when you hold on to that root of – when you let that root of bitterness take hold. Mm -hmm. And it wraps it all up in – the truth of scripture, which I appreciated. So it, it put it in the framework of the Bible and it showed me how it showed me what Mm -hmm. that looked like without being a sermon. So it communicated it in story, which just very much touched me, right? Like Mm -hmm. Jesus teaches in parables and that's just a really good way to break down big, heavy topics is in these stories. And I felt that treasures of the snow really did that. And for those listening, I just want to let you know, Treasures of the Snow has been stayed in print almost since it was written. But a lot of the publishings are abridged. And I don't know what all they've taken out of it. But I just want you to know that you will be hard pressed to find an unabridged copy of that book. But even the they made it into a movie, which was also really good. But the the book that has the movie image on the cover is the one that I read as a kid, the paperback. I think they have a made-for-movie hardcover that's, like, just mostly photos from the movie. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, the actual book paperback with the movie cover. So if that was abridged, it still held enough of the story for me <laughs> that this is my impression of the story. So, yeah, good luck finding a a good copy of that. But if you can't, that one is on Internet Archive, and we'll link to that one on Internet Archive that I read as a kid that had more than enough of the original story to have been impactful. What about you when you were a kid, Amanda? Did you? I know that you read books with your dad. Did you read the Narnia books together?
1: Yeah, we. Well, we read the first half of the first one. I didn't make it all the way through. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you just didn't make
0: it far enough. I think that The Boy and His Horse, I think you would have really liked that one. Maybe. Or The Horse and His Boy. I always swap those and then people are like, oh, is that an alternate title? No, it's just the title in my head, guys. The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. I think you would have liked that one.
1: Is there enough interpersonal stuff? Because you know It's all I don't interpersonal.
0: Need... Yeah. It's in the title. I the horse and his so... boy. It is we've all interpersonal it. between the horse and his boy.
1: We've read it, but I'm like they're they're blending together <laughs> in mm-hmm. my brain now. Yeah. So yes, as an adult we've read it, but they're blending together in my brain. But I need lots of interpersonal stuff in order yeah. to enjoy a book.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you do. The slower the pace, the happier you are.
1: Yes, the slower. Well, <laughs> well, as long as it's good writing.
0: Right, yes.
1: As long as it's good writing. There's some books that are just slow and the writing is terrible. But mm-hmm. the writing quality is paramount and the interpersonal stuff and the action is boring.
0: So basically a soap opera in book form.
1: No, not <laughs> <is> soap opera. <laughs>
0: that's like you don't get more interpersonal than that
1: yes but this but soap operas are all like
0: well they do have more drama than you're probably looking for
1: yeah they're not like (laughs) i i prefer like people who are honest Mm -hmm. and um have good character yeah i don't know what kind of soap operas you watch i don't watch soap operas
0: (laughs) i was just thinking of like what's interpersonal Soaps. Soaps are interpersonal. My great grandma well, used
1: to watch them. <laughs> this is why I love Jane Austen. Yes. Lots of interpersonal stuff, very little action. No blowing things up or no one dying. Yeah. Oh my goodness.
0: When we were talking last night, you made a comparison between persuasion. Jane Austen's persuasion and oh, one yeah. flew over the cuckoo's nest. Please share.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, I will. Yeah, so I was. <laughs> I had, I had, you know, you read, you read a book when you're younger, mm-hmm. and then you, especially if you have a memory like mine, you forget pieces of it, and then you read it again, and you're like, I forgot that was at the beginning. Yeah. So, I actually pulled it out. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Here. So in one flew over the cuckoo's nest, because you've never read it, have you? I have not. It takes place at a for lack of a better term, term, insane asylum, some sort of facility where um that's locked. Right. And they've got nurses and um there's plenty of abuse, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: like one would think there might be. But the character who's telling this story, the first chapter He's telling this. He's a jan. He's cleaning there, but he is a patient there. And the the first chapter ends with, "You think this is too horrible to have really happened? This is too awful to be the truth. But please, it's still hard for me to have a clear mind thinking on it. But it's the truth, even if it didn't happen." And so he tells this story. They get an, a new patient, and he just shakes everything up at this mental facility this home and spoiler alert (laughs) at the end after like there's all these abuses and he's just turning this place upside down there's an escape and this character who's telling this story escapes and runs away so you know in a classroom setting, the teacher will be like, okay, you've forgotten this first chapter by the time you get to the end of it. And they'll be like, read the last couple lines of the first chapter. It's true, even if it didn't really happen. Oh, (laughs) oh. So I had that with Persuasion, because I'd read it, loved it, read it again. And at the beginning of the book, Jane Austen says, these characters are nothing special. Their love story (laughs) is nothing special. They're just random people and there's nothing special about them. And I was like, oh man, I totally had forgotten that by the time I got to the end of the story. It was kind of a downer, Yeah, but it was also kind of like, yeah, I mean- they might not have been special, but everyone's love story is special in their yeah. own way. special to them and those who love them. and mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It was just interesting, the parallels between yeah. what, Rick Kuznets and Persuasion.
0: Yeah, it's like crazy <laughs> foreshadowing that you just like don't even pick up as foreshadowing because it's in the I first know. couple sentences. And you're like, you wouldn't put the whole story right here, would you?
1: <laughs> I, yeah. Yes. So now I want to talk to Jane Austen and and find out if she thinks that's true for all of her characters, or if she yeah. just tried to write some average ones and just for fun. I don't know. Well, when they you don't get feel that Dinner date set
0: up. Invite me over too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, it'll <laughs> be a while. Hopefully.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, funny. So I think my next book would be understood, Betsy by Dorothy one. Canfield Fisher. It's so good. And the message that I received from that one was just a confirmation of the Bible verse about how God puts the lonely in families. And so I really appreciated seeing that. And then I saw it echoed later in Anne of Green Gables. And both of those also showed me in, in different ways that if you aren't overbearing and hovering over your kids that they are more capable than you think and they might surprise you. And so I really appreciated that in in both books. And with Anne of Green Gables, as I was telling you last night, that book has spoken to me on multiple levels over the years. So uh-huh. when I was little, I really liked Anne and Diana's friendship and I just hoped to someday have a bosom friend like Anne. And I loved Matthew. I loved Matthew so much. And then now as an adult, one of my children is an Anne. She's a little bit of a space cadet. Her head is always in the clouds. And I have a newfound respect for Marilla that I never had as a child. And so as I was reading this book... To my girls for the first time, I was just yeah. thinking, I understand Marilla. Like, I understand her struggles to be patient. She clearly is quite content just being at home, being quiet with her and her brother. And now she has this extrovert who never shuts up and. Is not just not shutting up, but not just like talking about practical stuff, like talking about impractical things that she, with her logical mind, does not even see the value of. And that's really hard. But I just remembered this as I was telling this story. When we were reading it, I, of course, was relating the Anne character to Gemma, but Gemma and Inara related the Anne character to Eric, they're like, oh, look at Anne, she just talks nonstop and you think, okay, I got your point point. and she just keeps going. <laughs> They're
1: like, it's just like daddy. <laughs> well, at least, you know, she comes by it naturally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like,
0: well, the Gemma apple did not fall far from the tree. <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: wow. So you said you wanted a friend like Anne. Did you identify as like a Diana when you were a child?
0: Yes. I was like a quieter introvert and I didn't realize it up until the age of 20. I thought I was an extrovert because I had been told that I was an extrovert who just hated people. So that was like my sin nature was my disdain for people, but I was an extrovert who (laughs) needed them. It was quite the mind screw up right there. Um, very harmful. (laughs) When I found out I was an introvert, I basically cried for the whole weekend because so many little pieces of my life started clicking together. And I realized, oh, I don't hate people. They do just, in fact, drain my battery and I can only handle so much of them. And so I think I, in my childhood, I was typically taken under the wing of an extroverted child And that was how I socially existed. Like if there was no extrovert, I was a wallflower. Like if there's no extrovert who chose me, then I was just a wallflower. And so I wanted female friendship. And I grew up in a church that was fairly small, all males. I was the only girl for the majority of my childhood. And there was one other girl who was a few years older than me. And they lived about an hour away. So like they weren't in the weekly community culture of the church. They just showed up on Sunday. So these families that we were really close with all had sons, like five boys in each family, and then other families had boys. And so I did not have that female companionship that I wanted. And for a short season, there were girls in the church in one family, but they just wanted to play Barbies all the time. And I was not interested in the interpersonal drama that their Barbies had again, the autism. I wanted to just set things up. I wanted to create the world and do the world building. I did not actually want to play. I've always struggled with that. That's why I gave Inara a sister so quickly (laughs) was because I was not going to sit and play like that, just like fingernails on chalkboard for me. And Mm -hmm. so I, I just needed a Diana. So I was very blessed for most of my childhood that across the street from us, there was another homeschooling family and they had a daughter about a year younger than me who was the very definition of extrovert, one of the loudest human beings I have ever known. <laughs> but we played together a lot and we had our whole little Roxaboxin life going on in the forest, foresty area behind us and set up our towns and just played all the time. So she so- she ended up being
1: your I bosom aunt. friend
0: for that season of my life, yes.
1: I had an Anne too. I, I read, uh, the Anne of Green Gables series like when I was in high school. I really liked it, but I have the same problem with that as with Sense and Sensibility. Is mm-hmm. I look at both of those and go, I am the boring character here. <laughs> <laughs> so I like it, but it does remind me that I'm the boring one. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness, that's so funny. Sense and Sensibility is actually one of my books on my list because <laughs> it, well, cause it showed me so well because I, I read Austin pretty young. like I was reading through all of Austin in mm-hmm. that 10 to 12 window repeatedly. And so it sh- shows that like relationships are not cut and dry and they all yeah. require forgiveness. Yep. Like No one is going to be perfect in the relationship and you have to go into the relationship knowing I need to be prepared to forgive this person. And your relationship will fail if you are not prepared to forgive someone just like you hope they're going to forgive you because you're not going to be perfect either. Mm -hmm. But I'm still working through the Marianne and Colonel Brandon relationship because I just feel for him because he knows she's never going to feel that insane passion that she felt. For willoughby for him theirs is going to be a comfortable love and that's fine mm-hmm. and he's going to be happy enough because he loves her as passionately as he's capable of but i just always wonder like would he be dissatisfied at some point would he
1: i don't think have so. some jealous-
0: i don't he's think he not- would because he has great character <laughs>
1: He's not that, I that. I mean, Colonel Brandon. I like the line from Emma where Mr. Knightley is like, if I loved you less, I could talk about it more. So just yeah. because it's not fiery and, like, over-exuberant oh, does not mean that it's not... Right. And I I understand that. I just
0: know that Colonel Brandon had to sit there and watch her have this fiery love for Willoughby for as long as she did. And so now I wonder if at any point it would just be hard for him knowing that she doesn't have that same fire for him. She has a different type of love for him. That's all. Yeah. But it know. did, their relationship did bring opportunity for a really good conversation with Inara this week because she was telling me about one of her friends who had been going out with a guy And she knew that this guy had liked her for years and she was willing to like try the relationship, but they're way too young. First of all, let's just throw that out there. Babies should not be dealing with this. And so she started seeing him a little bit just to see how it went and he was immediately like, I love you. I've always loved you. And she was like, whoa, put on the brakes. I'm out. Yeah. And Anara was like, I don't see how that type of thing would ever work. Like he was clingy. That's what she was saying. She was saying he was clingy. And I was like, I think that might be the wrong word. I said, it is possible for somebody to develop feelings for someone who's in their friend circle, even if the person in their friend circle doesn't see them. Because when Eric and I met. I was going over to the house he was living in every night to play euchre and so the four of us who were playing euchre were really good friends. Eric went to bed at 8:30 like every night because he worked at the balloon factory uh-huh. and he had to get up at the booty crack of dawn and so he was just the weirdo who would come into the room and take a lap to say goodnight to everybody scrawny college kid holding his Teletubby pillowcase pillow to himself. Total nerd. And I had told myself I was not going to grow attached to anybody who is going back to Ames at the end of summer for college because we were on a church plant. Because I didn't know anybody to start with. So I was like, oh, I should invest in people who are actually going to be here when the summer's over, or I'm going to have no friends once again. So unfortunately, half of our euchre set was going back, but the other half was going to be here. So at least half stays mm-hmm. there. So I did not really notice Eric and Eric noticed me. He thought I was the prettiest thing he'd ever seen. He loved my laugh. He thought I was funny. And that lap he was doing every night was an attempt to catch my eye. And then after he moved back to Ames with half of my Euchre pair, when I would come back to visit, then we would play Euchre and we needed a fourth. And so he would jump into the game with us. And so that's how Eric and I started actually like spending any time together. And then my friend back here, his phone wasn't working for some weird reason. And so I was at their house a lot because this group would always hang out there. So Eric would call me to get a hold of this friend. And eventually one day I get off the phone and I'm turned to my girlfriend and I'm like, I think Eric and I became friends at some point, and I have no idea how this happened. And so, like, he just snuck up on me. And so by the time by the time I really even noticed that he was not just the weird nerdy kid, he already had feelings for me. And so I was trying to explain to Inara that, you know, Colonel Brandon, before Marianne ever notices him, has feelings for her. And Mm -hmm. she has feelings for somebody else and she's doing her own thing. But like his feelings are legitimate and real and they were very powerful. So he could have told her the first time she finally was willing to give him the time of day. I do love you. Would that have been wise? Maybe not. But would it have been clingy? (laughs) No, it wouldn't have been clingy. He would have just been making his declaration of love.
1: Honestly. Honestly
0: doing his thing. So we were able to have a good conversation and
1: Matt do it and I, that way. Yeah, Matt and I were similar. We played euchre when the band teacher was out because he sat behind me in band class, mm-hmm. and uh, he tried to ask me out like my freshman year of high school. But I always just like I didn't even realize he was trying to ask me out. I just <laughs> blew him off, and then poor guy. And, <laughs> and then in college, we finally started uh, dating. But yeah, it was you know, years in between. Yeah. And I, I hadn't really noticed him until college. Yeah. yeah. So, so I told her specifically, I
0: was like the, the other party could go into it saying, I'm willing to try this. Yeah. I'm willing to see if my feelings will grow and change as I get to know you more, which is what Marianne yeah. does, right? Like Marianne's yeah. willing to give Colonel Brandon a chance and let this little flicker of love grow. And so I – yeah, I really like Sense and Sensibility. I'm also the boring person in Sense and Sensibility. I'm absolutely the Eleanor. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't bother
1: uh, you apparently?
0: Um, no, because Marianne's a hot mess. Like I do yeah. not desire the drama level that comes with that level of passion.
1: Well, that's true.
0: It exhausts me to even think about maintaining that level of passion for anything. Like, I have things I like, right? Like, I like books and all this. But I'm not, like, quoting poetry over it yeah. (laughs) and feeling like I'm literally going to die if I am separated from that thing and that object of interest. Yeah, no, it's – I – my – sisters are Marianne's like one of my sisters especially is a Marianne and the most dramatic over-the-top person that I know in real life and I love her for it I could never maintain that level of output of energy I think I would just disintegrate into the ground like just poof poof into dust (laughs) that's all that's left all the energy has gone dust remains
1: well i'm thinking the energy comes with the passion i don't know because don't know?
0: Mm-hmm. i don't think so because there have been like flashes in my life of moments of great strong feeling and it dissipates like it has to dissipate i cannot maintain because no extra extra energy does not come with it okay okay For me, it may be different for others. It
1: might be different for other people.
0: I think like if you're wired as an extrovert, you might be wired more to some of those passions. But I look at the other like introverts who have passionate outbursts. They're always like in literature and in biographies. They're always described as outbursts. It's not something that they maintain. Whereas I feel like characters like Marianne can maintain it. Yeah, years. always. <laughs> like, always it on. Just, it does not yep. fade for them. <laughs> yeah. But you shared a book earlier today with me that was a formative book for you that was also a formative book for Eric.
1: Yes. So, Nourishing Traditions? Yeah. Well, and I was going to just add on, I don't think this one has been a formative book for Eric So I was going to just do a pair. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, like Nourishing Traditions, which Mm -hmm. I read when I was like at my sickest and uh, was not getting the help I needed to get any better. Mm -hmm. And so it was – it's called The Cookbook that Challenges Politically Correct Nutrition and the Diet Dictocrats. Excellent. (laughs) It. I read this and uh, Weston A. Price: Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. Which, if you want something heavy, yeah, there's a heavy book for you. But it's fascinating the way nutrition plays a role in your body mm-hmm. more than we realize, and that has just been one rabbit trail after another into how nutrition affects your bodies because when you don't have your health and you can't find it, you just will do whatever you can. And especially when you are from a Christian perspective, trying to work within the bounds of the things that God has given us for health, Mm -hmm. food is a major, major thing. But then for those who want to go further into doing their own food, like the self-sufficient life and how to live it is like a really great Introduction to just about everything. <laughs> it does not have you know fifty pages on how to grow broccoli, but it's got you know a couple paragraphs if you or yeah. how to raise sheep or any of those. But how did how did nourishing traditions affect Eric? Like how was that impactful for him?
0: Yeah, so Eric definitely embraced the standard American diet, the sad diet, and when I started getting sicker and sicker and we were looking into making changes that was asking a lot of him Mm -hmm. and we got that cookbook. And the thing that I really like about it, if you just want to open it and show like a middle page is how there's all these recipes. And then the information is just in these columns down the side. And so there will be like a one page article like that Oregon meets article there, but there's just these sidebars of information. So it's just small nuggets Mm -hmm. And so I was able to just read small nuggets here, small nuggets there to him. And he would just pick it up because it was on the counter. And he would read a small nugget here and a small nugget there. And then we were cooking out of it and the food didn't taste bad. And so I think – The
1: food didn't taste bad. Yeah,
0: it didn't taste bad. Well, sometimes like – I think we tried a vegetarian cookbook once for fun and the food was just gross. And so if you have a bad cookbook and you're trying to learn a new way of cooking – Yeah. You're not going to succeed.
1: Or a complicated way of cooking. The nice thing about this is it's not terribly complicated. So you can do it. It's right. It gives you all the basics
0: that you need. But this was the person who would have happily lived the rest of his life eating hamburger helper. And now we were going to cook everything from scratch. And so this book really helped him buy in. But this morning when we were on our coffee date and he heard the Voxer from you saying nourishing traditions was really formative for me. He was like, "That's it, right there." Last night when you guys were talking about it, I was like, "Nope, no formative books." He's like, "But that was a formative book for me." So, Well,
1: that's awesome. Yeah, it's it really helped with my health stuff, but it really helped open the doors to other ways of thinking because mm-hmm. it's interesting how so much of what we eat is very generational and
0: yeah,
1: very. You know, you just you obtain so much from your family, uh, from your family culture, and how your parents cooked and how your grandparents cooked, that it really takes a big mind shift to go to something else cooking yeah. wise because you just don't even realize how ingrained
0: mm-hmm.
1: it is, and and. The what we believe about food has changed so much. My grandparents ate healthy and, you know, it was margarine and and that kind of stuff. And then my other grandparents didn't eat healthy at all because they ate butter. And, you know, it was meat and potatoes and lots of butter and broccoli with lots of cheese delicious and like you know that was when i was growing up they were not healthy and now Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now it's kind of turned
0: did you know that margarine is naturally gray in color and they have to add coloring to it to make it palatable to your brain
1: yes did you know that crisco the shortening was a waste product And they did uh, marketing to tell people that lard was gross for dirty, uneducated people. And so smart, clean people Mm -hmm. eat vegetable shortening. Yeah. I'm thankful that my grandmother never believed that. (laughs) There's
0: a lot of products that started off as waste Waste. material that they just remarketed. So that was a really eye-opening book.
1: Yes, it was.
0: For sure.
1: So what were your other impactful books? Well, I mean,
0: there were a lot. I'm trying to just pare it down for the time. But I think that one really good one for me was Medallion by Donna Watkins. And I talked about that a bit when she was on the episode. But I think that it was echoed in Johnny Tremaine. Mm-hmm. And by Forbes and The Bridge, by Jerry Massey and The Runaway Princess, by Millie Howard. And they all had the common shared theme of be humble or be humbled. Mm-hmm. And as a firstborn who was intelligent, <laughs> I think that – and. Was, and was trying accident? no as <laughs> in my childhood I was a firstborn and I was intelligent and I was trying to overcompensate for all of my social confusions mm-hmm. and as a result I came off as very prideful a lot and so I think that these stories helped me to realize that that was going to end up in a fall of its own and to just be very aware of it. But something else that those books also showed in a group was that it doesn't matter how bad it seems, your future may be quite different from your present. So hold on and don't give up. And so that was very necessary message for me. And then in the bridge and medallion, they have a wise woman. And then in the runaway princess, there's a wise older man. And the thing that I admired about all of them was their medical knowledge using like herbs and things that could be found in nature and their ability and willingness to immediately jump in and serve those in need. Mm-hmm. And so I I really set my mind to wanting to be prepared to help those that I cared about yeah. and loved. And so even as a kid, like I carried a purse everywhere that was bigger than I needed it to be, so that I would have band-aids and I would have different things that somebody might need, you know, my level I'll of understanding you. of things people would need at that
1: age. I you. Yeah. That's I can totally see that
0: so yes so I just I wanted to be prepared to take care of the the people Mm -hmm. that I cared about in my circle
1: I think it's so important to have those wise older characters in books especially for children because kids already are disposed a lot of times to think they know more than they do and Mm -hmm. think that they're wiser than they are yeah and then If you've got books that don't have any wise adults, it just kind of reinforces that and, I don't know, teaches them that they know everything they need to know and don't need to ask for help. Yeah. And I don't know anyone who knows everything they need to know and doesn't need to ask for help.
0: Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. More recently, I would say a character similar to that that I've seen was in Give and Take by Ellie Swartz in the grandfather character who's lost his wife to dementia. And so the book focuses on the granddaughter who is struggling with her Mm -hmm. mental health and her hoarding and anxiety from it. But he's just very steadfast and wise. And he's in a healthy way going through the stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And he's able to model that for her. And so I think that that's probably the first book I've seen that has – an elderly person modeling grieving. Mm -hmm. So I really liked being able to add that one to my shelf for my kids to have as a mentor.
1: Definitely. I have one more that I definitely want to share. Okay. And this is a kid's one.
0: Ooh. But did you read it
1: as a kid? No. Awesome. I read it because it was (laughs) sent. none of these. I mean, all of these are like, High school or later. This one I read because it was sent from the Dolly Parton um, charity. Max explains everything. Soccer expert. In this, Max tells us all about soccer. And... (laughs) Or does he? (laughs) Well, he tells us everything that I ever learned about soccer. (laughs) He knows lots about soccer. Like... How you wear your thing? How you wear your socks on your head? Uh, about how it's important to twirl and stretch and somersault on the playing field, and about how you can't bring your collections yeah to to a soccer match. How you you help your teammates not get distracted by pulling out all the dandelions <laughs> and leaf clovers and uh this oh and about how what you can do with your hands while you're in the middle of a soccer game you can wave them or or strike a pose with them (laughs) i just this this one was very few books do i see myself very clearly this Mm -hmm. one i read it and went this is me this is my exact (laughs) experience growing up and so it was nice to uh, see myself in a book because not everyone does see themselves in books I wish we had greater variety at least I guess I see myself in the boring characters in some books but this made it (laughs) a lot less boring (laughs) to, to be the main character in a book
0: Uh I love the page where the coach is just like, eat an orange slice, Max.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I struggled with that through high school Mm -hmm. because people wanted me to be mentally devoted to sports, and I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And it caused some strife. And so... I I liked that the adults in this are like, just whatever. Yeah. (laughs) You can just be you.
0: (laughs) That's fun. Yeah, I I do understand how nice it is to see yourself in a book and to just feel seen in that way. Even if it's just by the author, To be like, oh, the author has seen someone like me Mm -hmm. and truly understood them. Yeah. I was glad you were able to share that book with me to – Give me a look into little Amanda, which was very similar to me because all of the photographs of me playing soccer when I was a kid are me sitting on the field with my legs crossed picking dandelions. And if there was audio, it would be my parents yelling from the sidelines, stand up, Amber, stand up, or me just watching the airplanes in the sky if I was standing. And
1: it's like, watch the ball. (laughs) My parents resorted to bribing me so it cost them dearly.
0: <laughs> it's all about motivation, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The main thing that I re- remember from I think my 3 years of soccer cuz I had this 3 years I don't know why my parents kept paying for this for 3 years. I have no idea at all. I don't think I ever kicked a ball in a game because there were these two boys on our team that were amazing and so basically they ran the whole game and everybody uh-huh. else was just window dressing. But I remember the story. So this would have been the late 80s, early 90s and our soccer and I played with our soccer coach's twin daughters. I guess maybe they saw a little action on the field, but he was telling us that when his wife was pregnant they had been told they were having a large boy and then in the delivery room the doctor goes it's a girl and the coach is like what and then the doctor goes it's another girl and the coach passed out in the delivery room and that was my first time hearing a story of a dad passing out in the delivery room and I thought it was pretty epic and I thought twin girls was a pretty fun way to completely set someone off. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that my last book that I will share, oh, I know I'm going to do two. So, Where the Red Fern Grows, that book broke me. Like, I sat and bawled. I know everybody cries over this book. It's such a good book, but I, I feel not that like the.
1: It. I don't like to bawl.
0: Oh, it was cathartic. Balls. Like, it was so sad (laughs) but it showed me love hard grieve hard Mm -hmm. and i feel that it was also a warning that if you love you will grieve like at some point in loving something there will be loss of that something like if you get married and you're married for 50 years, eventually your spouse will pass away or you will pass away. So one of you is going to have to experience that loss. But do you protect yourself and never love? Like That's not Mm -hmm. the solution. And I felt that at the end of the book, if a little boy had to go back and do it again, he would have still gotten the puppies. Mm -hmm. And so that was always which is how the book starts. So like that the path that he starts on with getting those puppies, he still would have chosen that path and loved those dogs and
1: now I wasn't there some sort of injustice with the way it ended that I felt like there was I think that's what bothered me is that mm-hmm. it shouldn't have ended the way it did like there was something went wrong.
0: Yeah, I don't like books where things go wrong. But I think it just felt It felt like a real story to me. Like sometimes stories feel made up. Yeah. But I felt like enough did go wrong and there was enough interpersonal issues with neighbors and challenges that were being faced and overcome. And I learned things that I've never forgotten. Like a raccoon will do anything for a shiny object. (laughs) Anything. But so I just I felt it was a real story. Mm -hmm. You know, like a story can be true without being nonfiction and this felt like a true story yeah and then i think the other book that i just loved and i say book and i probably mean howard piles but really it's books because i devoured every book i could get my hands on that was written well about robin hood but Mm -hmm. robin hood and i loved robin hood with a passion. I loved the Disney Robin Hood for the music. I loved – and the humor.
1: I'm, wait for me. <laughs> a little bunny. <laughs> I dressed up as Maid Marian from the Disney movie when I was little. Well, for yes. Halloween.
0: So for yeah, my 11th birthday party, I had a Robin Hood themed party. Oh, and that's And all the girls were Maid Marian. And then my guy friend that came was Robin Hood. And, and by all the girls, having already said I didn't really have girlfriends – we collected random kids from places <laughs> for my birthday parties as one is wont to do um but no the little girl from across the street and that one girl that lived an hour away for church mm-hmm. and then there's another girl in our neighborhood that i didn't see as often but <laughs> and the other girls would be like my three younger sisters who were 6, 7 and 7 years younger than me and all of their friends who came with their older siblings one of those situations yep <laughs> so I loved Robin Hood and I think that what Robin Hood showed me was there are people who abuse their power Mm -hmm. and you don't have to and you shouldn't take that abuse lying down and that if you live nobly, you will attract other noble people to you and that those who lack honor will just eventually fall to the wayside and that your job is to defend the defenseless and so i feel that those are those are like lessons that i've tried to live my life by with like an awareness of them and an action of them like trying to make noble choices in incredibly difficult situations <laughs> that just feel like no matter what i do i'm going to lose trying to pick the path forward of Protecting the people that I care about the most Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: protecting the people who don't even know what's going on and don't have a voice for themselves and protecting their interests and well-being and then trying to just attract those types of people to me, you know, like people who are trying to live by the same – standards and i consider you to be a very noble person and and matt like you guys are people who live with honor and i've met so many amazing people over facebook in the last few years where especially when some different situations started to go sideways i feel that like truly noble people really revealed themselves Mm -hmm. in that time and i'm I'm honored to know them and to be able to serve the Reshelving Alexandria community on Facebook together with them and mm-hmm. um, they're some of the wisest people <laughs> that I know and it's it's an honor to to be in their circle but but yeah just honor i think was so strong yeah in in those books and and what it looks like to live with honor and what it looks like to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves and to make personal sacrifices and that you don't always win. I mean, like it's a tragic ending to Robin Hood, but he never stops fighting and the people he loves continue fighting after he's gone for what is right. And so I just, I love me some Robin Hood. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's what we all love about uh, Mr. Knightley, you know, honor yeah. those characters are sometimes not uh, the most attractive on first glimpse, you know, mm-hmm. Colonel Brandon, Mr. Knightley, those kinds of characters. But in the end, they're the ones that, that you want to be friends with.
0: Yeah, it's true. That, that scene where, Knightley says to Emma, badly done, Emma. <laughs> like That's- that that took trust in their friendship
1: mm-hmm.
0: and care for their friendship to be willing to rebuke someone that you love. Yeah. That is not an easy path to take at all. Like there's no, so not- so much pain and risk mm-hmm. and things of that nature but yeah Emma definitely showed me how to take rebuke from a friend and to desire to have friends who are willing Mm -hmm. to rebuke me not as their full-time job that's just (laughs) obnoxious let's be real There's a limit to the rebuking that one should Let's look at Mr. Knightley. It was like, there was plenty he could have been rebuking Emma about, but he yeah. picked the one thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's that's, all learn from Mr. Knightley. I'm, <laughs> so, yeah. That's the, yeah. Peace, that's part of, you know, being a peacemaker is letting mm-hmm. the small things go. But yeah. 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 Like he avoids being a clanging
0: gong in yeah. Emma's head. And he just is more of just a gentle guiding force. By his own behavior, that's Mm -hmm. what I appreciated. If he saw her doing things he didn't agree with, he would do the opposite. He -hmm. didn't necessarily say anything to her until she crossed a line where to be her friend, he had to say something. Yeah. Mr. Knightley's a good guy. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That's why I named a kid after him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I named our dog, current dog, Emma, and it was brilliant because I have – uh mrs weston's voice in my head going emma dear and so we call her emma dear and then whenever she does something naughty we say badly done emma it's perfect that
0: is perfect i love it
1: oh man
0: well thank you amanda for racking your brain and being willing to think outside of (laughs) formative books or only books that formed me as a child and think You're clay until you die, so books can form you all along the way nope. for coming up with the titles that meant the most to you, and we want to hear from our listeners. We would love it if you would leave a comment on the website on the episode and tell us a book that has been formative for you or highly influential or a book that you felt really saw you and It could be a picture book like Amanda's. It could be a chapter book, but just tell us about it because we'd love to get to know you more as well. So thank you for spending time with us. And all these books will be listed in our show notes on the website. And remember the stories are truer than true.